Good to see you all. We're uh, working our way through this study in uh, the book of Genesis, and we're in chapters 10 and 11 this morning. If you wouldn't mind turning your Bibles uh, there as I'm uh, speaking, and as you're doing that, I'm wondering how many of us remember this kind of trend or pattern in the late 90s to buy these motivational posters. Do you remember ones like, like this? It was a big trend, the, uh, so many of them. Any confession of anyone having one of those at some point on their wall, office or somewhere in their house? Anybody still have one on a wall? John, I know you have one somewhere. The, um, but here, here's the, the idea is there's kind of a, a trend that I noticed with those posters. See if you can pick it up as I read a, a few of these descriptions. So that one, it's kind of hard to read the bottom there. It says, make it happen. Some people want it to happen. Some people wish it could happen. Others, make it happen. A little bit of a, a, a I'm okay with that one because of its author, uh, Michael Jordan. Uh, but other ones, excellence, excellence. The will to win, the desire to succeed, the urge to reach your full potential. These are the keys that will unlock the door to personal excellence. Blah. Achievement. Decide carefully exactly what you want in life. Then work like mad to make sure you get it. Wow. Or uh, believe to succeed. Courage does not always roar. Sometimes it's the quiet voice at the end of the day that says, I will try again tomorrow, harder, harder, work harder, make it happen. There is not, uh, not a challenge too great for those who have the will and heart to make it happen. What do we see as the trend pattern in these posters? Who, who's the focus on? You can do it, right? You can do it. Like if you, if you try hard enough, if you strive hard enough, if you pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you can do anything. There's no obstacle too great. There's nothing that the human, the, the human can't achieve. And really, it's reinforced, even though those have gone out of style, thank the Lord, uh, those have gone out of style, no offense, John, uh, but, that, but, uh, but still, I'm just teasing, um, uh, but still, it pervades our culture, this idea, this, this, this thinking, this uh, delusion, as I've titled this, of self-sufficiency, thinking that we can do things if we so choose. And really, it's reinforced all over the place. It may have posters are out of style, but you spend time with a, a, with a counselor present day, and so often that's the, what they're pointing you towards, and we drink it up like Kool-Aid, right? Because we love the flesh, loves the idea that I can do it on my own, loves the idea of self, uh, of self ability and things that you can accomplish uh, independent of our maker. But the reality is, as we know, if you spend any time in God's word, is that isn't true. We're fully dependent on our God. When I was growing up, I really enjoyed uh, playing with action figures. So a season where I did Star Wars for a long time, the action figures, moved from that, graduated, and went on to G.I. Joe. Anybody uh, have some G.I. Joe fans growing up? Had all the Cobra, Kai, I, no, that's, that's Karate Kid, but Cobra, you had, you had uh, all these action figures. I remember I'd go hours just setting these up, like about, about ready to go to, into battle. But then after it's all set up, I realized something. After they're all on display, you're like, Really, these action figures don't have much action 
unless I'm the one that's moving them and weirdly making them like clash or collide with each other. I was thinking about that. Isn't that the plight of man? Man thinks that we can do all of these things, but God's like, he really, apart from me, there's really no action. The reason we're told in scripture, in him we live and move and have our being. There's no, the, the, the delusion of self-sufficiency is exactly that, a delusion. And that's where we're going to see this morning that that's rooted all the way back in Genesis. We didn't come up with this idea. It's rooted all the way back and it's really ingrained deeply inside of us, whether we realize it or not. We're going to spend time looking, and this is post-flood. You remember last week we were in the story of Noah. Now they're having a fresh new start with basically Noah's three sons and their families. And so last week we were reminded of that. Now in chapter 10, it gives an account of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I'm not going to take the time to read all the way through chapter 10. I'm just going to point out a couple interesting highlights, and then we'll focus more on chapter 11. But basically, it gives an account in verses 1 through 5 of one of the three sons of Noah. His name is Japheth. Japheth went on to have multiple kids and generations following him and followed God's directive to be fruitful and multiply and to expand into all the earth. He went north, basically. And if you're actually of European descent, most likely, if you're to track your family line all the way back to one of the three, this would be who you're directed to. There's your fun trivia for the day. You're a, a, a relative of Japheth. Okay, verses 6 through 20 was sons of Ham. That's uh, kind of a fun thing to say going into Thanksgiving week. So the sons of Ham, that's what you maybe feel like a butterball. Uh, but sons of, sons of Ham, uh, the sons of Ham are basically outlined in verses 6 all the way through 20. And if you remember the account of Noah last week, the son, his son named Ham was the one that he cursed for his disrespect. So the sons of Ham end up becoming all of Israel's primary uh, opposition or enemies moving forward. You can read about them in that chapter, verses uh, 10. Uh, I mean, in it, you're, it mentions the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, lots of ites. Uh, verses 10 mentions the city of uh, Babylon or Babel is introduced there, would be a opposition. Nineveh is mentioned as part of the offspring. Remember Jonah being sent there. God had mercy on those people. And then verse 19 mentions the Canaanites. And Canaanites were the people, remember this is Moses writing to Israel, just before they're about to go into the promised land, who was inhabiting the promised land? You know, that's a good job piecing that together. Canaan, the Canaanites, uh, that's my lovely mom. Um, uh, and the, the idea of the Canaanites were the people that they were just about to have to take the promised land from. So all of this is educating them about their surrounding area. So the entire chapter, then it mentions in verses 21 through 31, the offspring of Shem. And Shem, we primarily, they primarily stayed in the Middle East, and that would have been the line that ultimately leads to Abram, Abraham, and then to David, and then to who else maybe after that? Jesus. There's the Sunday school answer. So that's the, that's the, the three different gener generations or offspring uh, being led from these three different sons. Are you tracking with that so far? So that's chapter 10, basically giving an account, kind of names and addresses, 
If anybody enjoys a good fiction book, when you're reading a fiction book, how often do they take time to have a chapter to give names and addresses? Never. Here, this is a genuine account, an authentic account of the history of man, the origins, if you will. Now, chapter 11, where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning, chapter 11 actually hones in or zooms in, if you will, on one of the characters and people groups that's mentioned in chapter 10. That people group is mentioned in verse 10, led by a guy by the name of Nimrod. That's just a fun name. In fact, say to your neighbor right now, Nimrod. That's a great name. When, uh, when I was growing up, I was thinking about this when I was stu- studying uh, this section of Scripture. Uh, my, my dad would make that comment growing up when we did something really stupid. He would say, don't be a Nimrod. Anybody else use that in your family? Anybody? Okay, a few people. There we go. So now you can make that connection. He would have been the leader of this new uh, attempt at starting a civilization called Babylon, or now we're going to see the Tower of Babel. All of this is pointing to a story. The reason it zooms in is because it's a story about an individual and a group of people, but the story is representational of the entire the direction of all of culture. You know how there's kind of a lot of times we move in history to a story that kind of captures what was going on in the era? So this is the, the story that does exactly that and has a lot to teach us about the delusion of self-sufficiency. Let me pray before we start, start in chapter 11. Lord Jesus, we invite you now to speak to us through this text. The wonderful thing we know about history, God, is that we can learn from it. God, we do ask that you teach us, that you'd expand our understanding and even some maybe clues or cues that we're slipping towards self-sufficiency. Pray that you'd free us from distraction, that this message wouldn't be for the person down the road, but for each one of us individually. We invite that in your name. Amen. Chapter 11. So here's the first lesson learned from this people group, that partial obedience is still disobedience. It says, now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. We're going to stop there just for a moment. The first thing that you notice is that kind of capturing what life was like then is that they all had the same language. They all had the same words. They all came from the same family ultimately. So they spoke the same. The first thing is that was a gift from God. That was a, a a benefit, if you think about it, as far as the ability to relate and interact with each other and to worship our God. I'll never forget a, a season in life back in the, I think it was the late 80s, where uh, there was kind of that, that pattern where they were doing the, uh, at different convention centers and different places, they were having those promise keeper events. Anybody remember those where all the men gathered? I'll never forget with my dad going down to Soldier Field, downtown Chicago, beautiful stadium down there uh, with the best football team. And, uh, and so we were down, just kidding, uh, we were down, down there, and, uh, and uh, along with the, the stadium holds 60,000 people, but there's more like about 40,000 there. There's a section that didn't have folks in it, but still when you're there, during the times of worship, there's something about it when there's 40,000 people calling out and celebrating our God. It was just like, oh man, this is, this is the way it's supposed to be. There's a, a benefit that came from a shared language that was God's initial design, his intent for mankind. We see that here, that's what was the description of the people. 
But then it says something. It says that these people that were moving east, which they hadn't gone very far, settled in this land of Shinar. Now, the interesting thing about that was, if you remember last week, the directive that God had given mankind, the first part of it was to be fruitful and multiply. That was the part that we talked about being a little bit more on the fun part. The other part is to be fruitful and multiply, but then the second part of the directive was to fill the earth, to fill the earth. Now, these people, partially obedient, they're going out, but the filling the earth part, they're taking a pause. They're, they're picking and choosing which part of God's directive they're going to follow and which part they're not going to follow. And I was thinking about that this week. So often that's what we get crippled by. That's what we get caught in is partial obedience. We run God's directives through the filter of convenience and comfort and as long as it's not an obstacle to the things that I want, my desires, my comfort, well, then we're okay with it. So in essence, what is that? That's me playing the role of God. I decide which are relevant for me. Yes, I know that this command is good and important for everyone, but I think for me it's okay if we have a little adjustment. I know that he calls everyone to forgive, but you don't understand what this family member did to me. I'll adjust accordingly. I, I, I know that he calls us to remain pure before marriage, but I'm committed to this guy. I, I'm going to marry him eventually. I think it's okay if we start cohabitating together, if we start sleeping together. These are the adjustments that are made. I, I, I know that God calls us not to be dishonest, but you don't understand. If I wouldn't have lied in that situation, there would have been real repercussions. All of these adjustments our God still takes seriously that he doesn't want partial obedience. He wants full obedience. The first teachable idea here, inviting God to bring these areas of partial obedience to light in our lives. Verse 3 says, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butu I don't even know how to say that, butumen uh, for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make, what? A name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Upon first read, you might glance at that and be like, hey, this is kind of a nice thing. Like, they're all united. They're, they're committed to one charge. They're under one leader. They're going to go accomplish. They're going to build this tower. What's the big deal? In our culture, so often we celebrate unity to such a degree that you're like, hey, any price, whatever you have to do to be united, that's worthy of all. Not in God's economy. Not in God's economy. Unity at the price of of compromise, of motivation, of, of purity, all of those things, you're like, yeah, we, we can't be united because we can't compromise that. In this case, they were willing to compromise as it relates to motivation. What does it say was their motivation? What would have been the anthem for this building this tower? To what? Make a name for themselves. We're going to do this to put the spotlight on me 
and the greatness, the accomplishments of mankind, that is worth coming together so we can honor what man can do. We can celebrate. There's no obstacle in the way. No, no stones, no problem. We'll make our own bricks. You see, this is a, an attempt to build a monument, a tower, if you will, in their own honor. In their own honor. That's the idea behind this passage. And here, their anthem would have been to celebrate my greatness rather than our God attempting to steal his glory. So many times when you read these Old Testament passages, you look and you're just like, man, those people are really messed up, right? You read these passages and you're like, man, they were really, man, things had declined. They had gone to unsinkable levels. You're like, it's, it's crazy where they had landed, but how often still present day we give so much attention to what? Building our own towers, whether it's work, whether it's education, whether it's family, whether it's things that are inherently can be good things. Building a tower wasn't a bad thing, but the motivation behind it actually matters. And here's the thing to understand is that our God notices motivation. Sometimes we think, well, as long as the, the, the kind of thinking that the end justifies the means, but the question behind the scenes for us that really want to get more serious in our walk with the Lord is what's actually motivating? What's compelling you to do the things that you do? Is it to put the spotlight on him or to put the spotlight on you? About a month ago, I stumbled upon this uh, folder in my office that in the folder had an outline of it was when I was first uh, applying at this church for the senior pastor role, and they had sent some different information. It was a, one of the sheets in particular had an outline of kind of a, attendance patterns, and it had an outline of giving patterns and all of that stuff. And it's kind of a, a, a fun thing to, if you appro- appropriately approached it, to be like, oh man, look what God has done. But there's something in me as like, oh man, I'm excited to show the elders, show the staff where things, how things have progressed. You had the, the parallel of the current reality versus the prior reality. And in that, I had a check in my spirit where God's like, slow down there, slugger. Like, who, who, who's this about? Who's this about? Who's, whose kingdom is being built here? Who's to be honored in that? And I feel like God presses in when your motivation maybe, maybe gets a little bit off track before you throw too many stones at your pastor, though. What's your area? What's your area? What is it that, that you have a tendency to self-celebrate? What's your, what's your tendency to take your pride in? You're excited to tell that story of your achievement. This is the reminder that our God notices not just what we're doing, the motivation behind what we're doing as well. And he actually responds accordingly. Take a look in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So you remember the intent in that. Their intent was for this tower to ultimately reach the heavens. And there's a a little bit of satire in this description that as man is trying to reach up to who? To God. God's like, oh, I'll come down and see what they're up to. And it's it's kind of a a fun picture where they're slaving away. Like, how are we going to get to the heavens? God's like, oh, let's let's come see what they're up to. And I love his verbiage there. 
He says, let's go see what the, what the son or, or, or the children of man have built. It's kind of like, oh, I don't know if you've ever done this with your kids or you remember doing this with your kids. You go down and you see something that they made and you're like, oh, isn't that special? Like, oh, you color between the lines. That's so good. I think this is a little bit of the picture of God saying, oh, let's see all that the children of man are able to accomplish. It's a wonderful reminder for us that so often in the gospel parallel, so often our world is so busy trying to make it to God, to achieve through performance, through trying to appease him, trying to come before him based on his merit, our merit, our efforts. Really, that's all world religions apart from Jesus Christ. God's like, yeah, but you need me to come down. You, you need me to come down. You need me to intervene on my behalf. Understanding the height at which our God is. I love Psalms 113. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is the, like the Lord our God, who is seated on, on high, who looks far down, think about this, far down on the heavens and the earth. Remember at the beginning of our study in Genesis, we looked at the expanse of the heavens and the universe. It's like he has to look down. Oh, look at the heavens. Oh, look what man is up to. And they almost sense this and when you're consistent in your interpretation with the rest of Scripture. He's not saying, oh, what are we going to do? They're going to accomplish all this. I think it's a little bit more, this is my interpretation and many others, is the idea that there's a little bit more satire in this. Oh, nothing will become impossible for them. A little bit of tongue-in-cheek, in a sense, of his description of mankind, because nowhere else does he celebrate what man can do independent of himself. So he's bringing it back to reality. There's a little bit of a, a, a man is getting too big for his britches, and so God's like, all right, let's, let's, let's oppose this. He doesn't punish them. I find that interesting. He doesn't punish them. He just thwarts their plans. He just opposes their plans. So often for us, trying to figure out what in the world? Why do I feel like I keep running into a wall? Why do I feel like I, I can't get this straight in my life? Why do I feel like there's constantly opposition? Maybe the very first question to ask yourself, what's going on with your pride meter? What's going on with your motivation? What's going on behind the scenes in your, your heart? Because we see here that our God has no issue with opposing the proud, and we're told elsewhere that he gives grace to the humble. Here he says, let us let us go down, pointing to the Trinity, and he makes the choice to disturb, to throw off things. What's the means in which he's going to throw off their plans? What do you guys see? What's he going to do? He's going to, he's going to mess with their language. I, I, I'm confident. So, so I was just in Bolivia a couple weeks ago, and man, anytime you've been overseas or spent time where you don't speak the same language, man, it's an act in frustration, right? Uh, un poco espanol el, by El Scato uh, was, was not getting through to the people of Bolivia. And uh, sorry, that's as much as I got. And uh, uh, El Baño, por favor. Uh, I got that. Uh, the, the, the things that you know, you're just like, this is, this is miserable. Like the, 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 the confusion that comes with it. 
here's what my, maybe I'm off on this and you can interpret this. I think this was like a knee kicker within the Trinity. They're like, I mean, like, I, I think they're up there watching and be like, check these guys out. They can't even pass a brick now. Like they're, they're all speaking lang- different languages. They're frustrated. God's like, oh, you silly people. Any proclamation of self-sufficiency, God is like, all right, we need, we need to deal with that. Getting a little too big for your britches. And so here we have that demonstrated with a complete change in languages as we try to make sense out of why is there all these different languages? Well, there you go. There's your origin story. Blessing comes from obedience, frustration from disobedience demonstrated here in the text. Verse 8, we'll wrap up in this section, kind of the uh, irony of their thinking. It says, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. And you hear the expression of you're just babbling. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the people. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So the irony is that man's greatest desire was, in this instance, autonomy and self-celebrating self. The irony is, is that that is what they thought was going to be their badge of honor. But in the opposite, the thing that they feared the most was the idea of being dispersed amongst the earth. That's what actually ended up rescuing them. So often in our mind, we think of this as the thing that we want so much. God's like, ah, that's actually not what's best, best for you. Remember last week that God had promised, I'll never destroy the earth again. I'm not earth through a flood. He, he made that promise, that commitment. And so this was actually a, a rescue, if you think about it. By dispersing that, then he was dealing with kingdoms independently, separately. No longer judgment of all of the earth. Ask Sodom and Gomorrah about that. It was specific to specific people groups. So it was actually a, a rescue in a sense that he's not judging everyone. He's saying, we're going to disperse you and you're accountable based on your group of people. So this was God's kindness in a sense, maybe some of us remember growing up on road trips, and when your dad would get upset, he would reach to the back and just start swinging. He said, it didn't really matter who was getting hit, just somebody was going to get hit, right? Anybody grow up with that? I've just heard of that happening with other people. And, uh, but, uh, but, uh, but anyway, this, this is God's kindness saying, you know what, I, I'm going to deal with you separately, individually, and so it ends up being their rescue. But the thing that I wanted to point out that's most fascinating in that little section is how often it says, and the Lord dispersed them, the Lord dispersed them, the Lord dispersed them. This idea that anytime we bump heads with God's sovereignty and his plan, guess who's going to win? Guess who's going to win? We have this idea. He said, hey, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the entire earth. Guess what's going to happen? If God wants it to happen, it's going to happen. It, it, there, there's, you can either come willingly or you can come kicking and screaming. Either way, it's going to happen. My kids get so annoyed with the one thing that we ask them to do to unload the dishwasher after it's been cleaned. Anybody deal with that with your kids? Oh, it's this, this such a burden, you know, those three minutes that it actually takes. And in that, I've explained to my kids, listen, you can do it with a good attitude a bad attitude, either way, it's going to happen, right? Either way, you, you have a choice. And I was like, that, that's our God. 
That's our God and his sovereignty. Our submission is imminent. It, it's going to happen. And here's the important thing when we're formulating our, our theology, our understanding of God, is that ultimately every single one of us is going to submit to Almighty God. Uh, ultimately, you can, you can have this agenda, you can be building your tower, you can be building your kingdom. And he's like, hey, at some point, at some point in this timeline of history, you will submit whether it's willingly or not. Philippians 2.10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That submission is coming, whether it's with our choice or it's imposed upon us. Here's the reminder, and the good news is it's the best thing that could be possible. His plans for us are good. They're a future that benefits us. He's not trying to harm you. That's what he reminds us so often in Scripture. It's a beautiful lesson and a reminder for us that, you know what? It's best to just say, all right, I turn this over to you. I turn over my life. Recapping or summarizing, in a sense, the following section, the remainder of chapter 11, basically summarizes or moves forward in the line of Shem. You can actually see there that it will ultimately lead to Abram, who will be called Abraham. Next week, we'll actually, week after next, after Thanksgiving, we'll spend a little bit more time in that. But the recap of the different lessons is this. Partial obedience is still, help me finish the line, disobedience. It's still disobedience. He, he wants us fully to respond to his charge, not for us to have selective response to his directives in our lives. For that, sometimes we need to go before God and ask him, God, reveal in me, where am I being not fully obedient? I'm confident he'd love to help you uh, narrow that down. Our motivation matters. Second principle, that's the idea that really that's the deep-rooted stuff. What's, what's actually compelling me? What's moving me? Some of that needs to be, again, some heart-check stuff that God would love to go on an adventure pointing out for you. God opposes the proud, a principle that some of us, maybe the first question we need to ask when we keep running into walls, man, is what's, what's my pride meter? How am I doing with that? And the last one, the ultimate one, is that uh, that eventually, one way or another, submission is imminent. It's, it, it's happening. We're headed that direction. You either come willingly or not so willingly, but it will happen. It's a great reminder for us that self-sufficiency, it's just a delusion, right? Let me pray as we wrap up. God, I thank you for this section of Scripture and the lessons learned there about who you are, who we are in relation to that. We thank you for your, patient, your patience with us. Thank you that even demonstrating here, even in their arrogance and pride, that you didn't come down with a, a hammer, but instead just got in the way, threw some things off. Thank you for the way that you deal with us as a, as a people, that it's driven and compelled by love. God, we pray that you would teach us something from this section, God, that you'd have something that sticks going into the week ahead. We invite that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.